so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Hearing at the present state of racial relations within the church can leave one feeling discouraged. But as Christians, we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. With this hope, Philip Bethencourt, Don Carson, H.B. Charles, Crawford Loritz, Afshin Ziafat, and Beth Moore discuss the future of evangelicals and racial unity at our MLK 50 conference. We pray this message encourages you. What we want to spend our time doing now is thinking about where do we go? And I want to start with you, Dr. Carson. Uh, If you could think through how evangelicals can lead when it comes to racial unity, we need to be willing to acknowledge where we've fallen short, where we have misappropriated our cultural privilege and not leveraged it in the way that we should. And so are there any specific things that come to mind to you that as we leave from here, we need to be consciously repenting of? And then more importantly, as we look ahead, how do we foster a posture of humility whenever it comes to this issue in the days ahead? If I could be so bold to begin one step farther back, and that is with the definition of evangelical. It's becoming extraordinarily slippery. Um, Some people define evangelical largely in political terms. Others define evangelical out of historical sequence, what group to belong to in the past. Others out of a sociological grouping, those who call themselves evangelicals are evangelicals. And others theologically, that is evangelicals are those who follow the evangel, the good news. Well, that means you've got a text to look at. Go and find out what the Bible says about the good news. I think we need to do a lot more in the line of personal relationships. Um, I'm I'm a Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, so I have students from all kinds of backgrounds in my home all the time. Um, But but it is scary to find how many white Christians don't have any black friends or Asian friends or Hispanic friends. Say hello to them, but I think that we need to put in a valiant effort to be in their homes, to have them in our homes, to let our kids play together, to break down barriers by talking, by communication. And then it's within that framework that really creative listening takes place. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to listen if you just meet together for a meeting and, and have a few conversations. But, but, but to get to know people as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and within that framework, to recognize how deeply our structural independence is and what steps we can take to overcome that, that's going to be framed in the context of friendship and listening, I think. That's really helpful. And Crawford, I want to come to you next because I imagine there are people in the room or watching online who showed up and have been inspired and equipped and they're ready to go back to the local churches and make a difference, but they're sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do next. 
Maybe it's a pastor of a predominantly white church. Maybe it's a church member that doesn't have a particular amount of influence, but they know when they go home, they're going to meet resistance. They've, they felt encouraged and emboldened to see like-minded people here, but they know that's not the case when they get back to their community. What kind of resistance might they expect, and what advice practically would you give for people as they go back into their churches to make a difference where they are? Well, I think the very first thing you have to do is, is distinguish between reluctance and resistance. Uh, I think sometimes we create more resistance than what's really there. So you've got to be patient with people. We've come, we've, been we've had a concentrated time, uh, great speakers, great information, a lot of life change. People back home have been going to their jobs, doing their daily routine, they haven't been in a conference, they haven't had these lights turned on the way we do. So I think what we need to do is have a little bit of patience when we go back, develop heart connection with people. What Don said is, is, is exactly right. Uh, spend time loving people, relating to people, connecting with their hearts, and let the consistency and eloquence of your commitment be that which converts them and wins them over. Uh, don't whip out the magazines and the, 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 you know, the, the sites and this kind of thing. I think that that's what we really, really need to do. You know, and I, I thought you were going to ask me a question r relative also to, uh, I pastor a predominantly white church and uh, came there in 2005 and it was probably 98% or so white then. It's now 74% white and 26% African American. And, uh, uh, and our, 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 the breakup is, is, is greater representation than the community in which, which we live there. And uh, all that to say is that never underestimate the power of love and the resilience of love. And uh, the second thing I would say too is uh, press into your calling. Every calling has difficulties, and the devil's not sitting back in his lazy boy lounger while you do what God's called you to do. So there's a certain expectation of resistance that you have to have if it's noble and if it's right. The question is, are you called to do it? Is it what God wants you to do? And at that point, you have to pursue faithfulness and develop those relationships. That's a great insight. And Beth, I'm sure many people who follow you online, on social media, have seen the way that over recent days and years you become more vocal about justice issues like race. I remember one time you commenting after an officer involved shooting and one of our African-American pastor friends watched the way that you got significant backlash online and he said to me, man, if somebody of her stature who's a white evangelical leader gets that kind of pushback, what hope is there for somebody like me if I'm going to try to speak out on these issues? And so I'm curious, what has sparked your uh, growing boldness in these areas and what what do you say when people commend you for being so brave on these issues i was thinking uh, back this afternoon where it really started that i, I began just kind of coming up with the volume because i've been outspoken a long time through the bible studies but we just weren't on the open airwaves like we are now on platforms where anyone can hear uh, in the days when it was Bible studies and books and that they were choosing to listen to you. Now you're getting listened to by people that follow you so that they can see you trip up so that they can catch you. But I can tell you what it was. Uh, what I saw begin to happen uh, 18 or so months ago is that there was such an outcry of shut up 
to every dissenting voice, and that is terrifying. That is terrifying. Any time we are in a society where we can shut up people that disagree, what, even if we don't,、uh, even if we don't like what they're saying and we don't think they have a point, we still the the, the freedom to be able to speak, and that that for a number of us, because we were dissenting some of what was happening. In such an explosive、uh, way, and we were speaking back to it. The shut up was so loud that it was like it would be terrifying too. I, I, there were days that I thought, you know what, I'm going to put something out there. I kept thinking of young women coming up and all, how easy it is to just look. If, if we watch everybody shut up when they're told to, what does that say? We've got we've got to speak out. This is part of the gospel message, and so. It was very much a decision to keep talking, keep talking, and it wasn't because I thought I had something important to say. It is because we have the right to speak. We have the right to speak. We have the right to disagree. We have the right、uh, to come in with a different outlook. The reason why、um, I struggle with someone saying, "Man, you are so brave," and they'll say it. We were talking about it earlier. They've said it. Uh, to several, you are so brave, because it's not brave. This is gospel. This is gospel.、Um, what what I think has happened here is that in our discipleship, we are not teaching what is normative、uh, in in the in the believing life. And when we live for the gospel, when we carry the, our cross and we follow Jesus, we are walking in. To a storm, we were told that Luke chapter ten, Matthew chapter ten. He said, "You will be sheep among wolves, not wolves among sheep. We'll be sheep among wolves." He said, "You'll you'll be、uh, persecuted. You'll be、uh, criticized, talked about. You'll be、uh, you'll be imprisoned. All of the your lives may be taken from you." The, we, what we've done, we've been very very proud of the fact that we have not. Ascribed to a prosperity gospel, but what we have ascribed to is a pampered gospel, where we're so we're so afraid of suffering, we're so afraid someone's going to criticize us and hurt our feelings, and we. This is the gospel work of Jesus Christ, and we're going with Him. We're going whatever it takes, no matter how unpopular it is. He he was hated. Uh, we have to have thicker skin than that, and I'm just—I'm devoted to being loyal to him and following him wherever he's leading here. And HB, I know in your church context, you want to see the people in your church disciple in a way that Beth just talked about. And what's interesting about your church in Jacksonville is you pastored a predominantly black church, and a few years ago you merged with a predominantly white church. And I've heard you talk previously about the fact that the The biggest barriers you faced weren't so much about racial tension; they were more about preference and comfort. And I'd love for you to take us through that journey, and then help us to reflect about some lessons that those that are gathered here can learn about how to apply that in their ministry context. Sure. As you mentioned, our church merged with a predominantly white church, and in the midst of all of the conversations as we prayed through that decision, most of the conversations had nothing to do with directly. Race issue, issues of music, ministry programs, 
leadership positions, sometimes classrooms, <laughs> uh, turf. And pastoring this work over the past couple of years, that has been, I would say, the ongoing thing we've had to address to lead our church forward. And if you're not careful, cultural things like that can become a barrier for us to not address the bigger issues that the gospel wants us to look at. The Bible calls us to, to unity, but in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that the key to that unity is humility, mm -hmm. and that nothing should be done through rivalry or conceit, but with humility we are to honor one another as better than ourselves and look not after our own interests only, but after the interests of others. In that regard, to the degree that there is humility on everyone's part, which means there is some giving up, there is some taking up your cross indeed for suffering, but also laying aside our preferences and our taste about secondary things for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of unity, is vital in those days, in these days that we live in. Paul often in his letters marks that he knows Christians are Christians by two characteristics, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for one another. And, and both that faith in Christ and love for one another, love that causes me to sacrifice, to lay down my life for others, is vital if there's going to be spiritual unity. I think these are smoke screens, these are barriers and walls and traditions that are just as vital for us to address if there's going to be spiritual unity around racial matters. We want to see that spiritual unity in the church, but Afshin, I know your story, and you didn't see that play out in your family. You moved to America as an Iranian-American right in the height of the tensions in the Middle East in the 80s and 90s, and I'd love for you to take a minute to share your story and how that might give us a window on ways that that might shape our view of racial unity moving forward. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think, yeah, I represent, I guess, on this panel, uh, the, the, the truth that racial unity is obviously not just the black-white binary, but really our desire is to see ra all races uh, come to a saving knowledge of, of the gospel. Uh, but I think it does speak into some of the tensions that um, African-Americans have uh, experience and one one small experience that I went through when I came to this country when my family we were, I was born here when I was two we moved to Iran when the revolution hit we came back and we were escaping the turmoil of Iran thinking that it was going to be comfortable here we had no idea the hostility that we were going to be in when uh, a bunch of Americans were held hostage in Iran and so people started throwing rocks through our window because we're from Iran and my parents cars tires would be slashed and older high school kids would threatened to beat up my brother and I, and I remember being shot at with BB guns coming home from uh, school as in first grade, you know, I mean, just, so all that, not to throw a pity party, but just to say that one Christian lady, it was my tutor, uh, looked at my family and didn't see threat, but saw opportunity, and she loved me, and she invested in me, and taught me English, and in the second grade, she gave me a New Testament, and 10 years later, I read that New Testament, and that's how I came to faith in Christ, and so what, what I try to say so now fast forward, I'm a pastor in Frisco and Dallas uh, area. And then two years ago, the police shooting happened in Dallas. And um, I'm pastoring a church and we're wrestling with this, you know, they're marching the streets, shouting Black Lives Matter. Uh, and then 
the, the police officers get gunned down. And so then you got all these other people coming out back the blue. And, and so there's these kind of two voices. And so uh, I'm sit, standing in front of our church saying, look, we have to seek, first of all, to A, remember the gospel. That's the most important. I could go on forever on that. But the point I want to make is seek to understand. Um, certainly we want to back the blue. We want to be supportive and thankful and, you know, God bless our law enforcement. Uh, but when you so quickly just run to that, or if someone says Black Lives Matter, and I'm not even talking about everything involved with the movement I, that I may not be aware of. I'm just talking about that slogan. When someone says Black Lives Matter, and we're so quick to say, why do you always play the race card? Or, well, all lives matter. Uh, I think we're missing an opportunity to first seek to understand why that slogan even took off. Why is it that people, what, what is my African-American brother or sister really feeling when they're driving in a car across the city in, in, in the night? And, and just, do they feel marginalized or profiled? Uh, and that's something that I can relate to. And I think what I want to tell our people is, instead of just being, just dismissing that, why not, why not seek to understand uh, and that's what she did. She didn't see threat. She came and loved my family and loved me. Why not go and ask them those questions? What's it like to live in our society as an African-American? And I think once we get that understanding, then we can move to that loving them. So. That's so helpful. And you mentioned some of the tensions that have emerged in the last few years. And I want to open this up to the whole panel, anybody that wants to weigh in, because in the last two to three years, we've seen a tremendous polarization in America especially when it comes to race, whether it's the officer-involved shootings that you speak of, it's the rise of the alt-right, it's the racial tensions that were in fault lines that were exposed in the 2016 election and the aftermath. And I imagine in this room, uh, there are many of you that are weary throughout the drama. I mean, how many of you, just by show of hands, at some point or multiple points, have felt tired trying to champion this conversation? Anybody? Okay, so here's my question to our panel. Where do we go from here? And how can we be the type of people that are champions for healing in the midst of this racial tension that we've experienced in the last few years? I'll, I'll start. I think one of the things it's going to take, it won't be just one answer, but I think this is very important. This is what's helped me so much. Helped me the last couple of days, but helped me so much over the last couple of years is that we have to become intentional students. I think one of the things, one of the strong suits of the streams that we represent up here uh, today and, and this week is that so much teaching has come uh, from, from this stream of, uh, of Christianity. It's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. But we're very accustomed to that. We're very accustomed to being the ones that, uh, that that have the seminaries and the uh, commentaries and all the things that we learn from. But in, in the situation that we're in right now, we, what it's going to demand is that there's also a reversal of roles, that we become listeners and students, that we learn from these voices, and that we intentionally lean in. I started just being very intentional about who I was going to listen to and make sure that it wasn't just going to be people of color that I already liked and already agreed with, but who was going to push me? Who was going to make me really think? Who was going to make me mad enough to really go back and think? Um, but I, I think so often a role reversal is extremely uncomfortable. We like the way this is set up. We like this. We 
teach, and I'm not talking about me, I'm just talking about in, in, in our part of the world, we are the teachers, you were the students, and then suddenly, it's no, 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 it's got to reverse here. One of the things I hear leaders of color telling us is that we don't, we don't just want to come to you on your terms when you say, no, we want unity. We want to all be together. Now come over here and come with, come be unified with us in what we do and everything we, and all the ways we do it. Um, we can't, we can't do it that way. It's not going to work. And I don't know how this is going to go over here, but on Monday, I will be at that march in Atlanta and at the March for Humanity. And the reason I will is because I was here this week. Now, I need to go where I'm not, I don't have any privilege. I don't have any protection. I'm just going to be out there in a mass of people because I've got to then, I've got to reverse roles and be able to go in and, and learn in that environment and see what that is like and hear it from that perspective, I think this is going to be critical that we're able, you know, just to, we can see how codependent we are if we cannot let a relationship change and let somebody else take the lead and us follow and listen. Yeah. Um, one of the difficulties in answering that question is that that question, in my 68 years, has been asked repeatedly whenever we've gone through these cycles. And I think it gets exhausting to continue to answer that question, where do we go from here? And the more appropriate question is, why haven't we gone from here? Um, and and, I, and I, I, don't, I don't say that at a certain point it comes across a tad bit disingenuous uh, because we can Google and find out how to fix, uh, you know, a crib. We can find out how to fix our cars. Um, the answers to this question are age old. Uh, the issue is the courage to do and the courage to break from and the courage to walk across and to immerse yourself as a learner. That's where the breakdown is taking place. And Beth, you mentioned that as you mentioned the cost of discipleship. It's going to cost us something. Mm -hmm. And this issue is going to cost us something to be involved. It's going to cost uh, uh, you know, friends uh, the loneliness of, 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 of developing an ethnically bilingual uh, life. It's going to cost us something. And so I think the question has to be, are we willing to pay that price? Love is expensive, and commitment is expensive. And I don't think it's any secret as to how we've gotten to this divide. It's, it's, it's in our hearts. Uh, when Obama was elected as president, and it unearthed a latent racism that was just there, and it came up to the top of the surface. And, uh, and I think God is standing back and saying to the church, y'all know what to do here. You really do know what to do. It's the courage and will to do it, yeah. and it. to be it, and to That's pay it. that price. Yeah. I, I would also just add, do not underestimate what God is doing in the local church. Yeah. There are big structures and institutions and systems that need to be addressed, 
but the Lord is at work in this church. And local churches being faithful right where they are might not make national headlines, but God is changing communities and neighborhoods and cities through churches that are determined to be the church. Amen. Amen. And I want to say, don't feel like you are not accomplishing something because you are not leading or being a part of some mass movement that gets a lot of attention. As you preach the gospel and live the gospel and serve your community and be light and salt where God has called you, don't underestimate. You might not see it as you plant the seed. And this is the subversive power of the gospel. God works through his word, not as a hammer, but in, in the parables of Jesus as a seed. And as you plant the seed, you've got to trust that God is doing something underneath the soil and that his word will bear fruit and that God is at work in the church. So good. So good. Without wanting to discount anything that my brothers and sister have said, um, I, I think that it is important not simply to lay on a guilt trip. Uh, God knows there's enough sin around that a good whiff of subjective guilt then genuinely confessed before the cross is right. But one of the things that strikes you in the New Testament is how eager Christians born along by the Spirit of God rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Mm -hmm. um, as in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And um, Paul longs in Philippians 3 to know not only the power of the resurrection, but the fellowship of his suffering. So, so that if we present um, the challenges that we face only as burdens to be borne, only as mountains to climb, only as gulfs to bridge, uh, although all of those metaphors and ways of thinking of things are right and have biblical warrant, we may overlook how they look differently if our passion is for the glory of Christ. It's, it's for the building up of the church, and we take delight in a, a, a little battering because then we're aligning ourselves with Christ. If people despise you and reject you, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice! Rejoice because in the same way they mocked the prophets who were before you, uh, so, so that it becomes an identity thing. Do, do, do we want to bear a little shame and ignominy um, in order to be aligned with Christ who bore the supreme shame and ignominy on our behalf? And even our motivations in race relationships are, are not, dare I say this, just equality, as if equality is a just. Um, but it's not just equality, it's not just loving our neighbor, as important as all of those things are, as central as they are. But, but it is for the passion for the glory of God and emerges out of a great joy of following Jesus as Lord and, and within that framework refusing the siren voices of a, of, of a world that is committed to itself and to its own destruction. Uh, this, is, this is a conference where we shouldn't go out of here feeling down in the mouth because there's so much work to be done and what... Yeah, okay, I'll do it. I don't like it, but I'm, I'm going to grit and bear it and be brave and courageous. Uh, but, but rather, what a spectacular privilege to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And if that means a bit of battering, so be it.
I, mean, I would maybe add a couple of things. I think when you mentioned the, the, the 16 election and that, the, the divisiveness of that and things like that, I just think as Christian leaders, it hasn't been helpful for Christian leaders to attach themselves just unconditionally to a political leader or a political party or, you know, even America unequivocally. You know what I mean? Uh, I think we have got to attach ourselves to the gospel and to Jesus Amen. Christ. And the law, may, the law may change, the leaders may change, um, but that is our hope. And so when, uh, even if, you know, you supported a leader uh, thinking that they were walking in the ways of Christ, if they don't, um, I think when we dismiss ungodly behavior or just excuse it because of our political preference, we lose our voice, you know? And I think we've got to have, as Christian leaders, I think we have to have the boldness that, that, that Paul had to go up to Peter and say, brother, you are not walking in step with the gospel. Especially if we're saying that that political leader, I know him and he is a Christian. You know what I mean? Then, I, then when he doesn't walk it, then we should be able to speak out. That's one. Then two, I think as a young pastor, I feel the burden of teaching the Bible to this next generation and let them know what God is after. Right. God's heart That's beats right. for all people. My, for a real quick story, my wife was in a Walmart with my daughter and there was an African-American lady and my five-year-old daughter just blurts out, mom, why is, does she have a different skin color than we do? And Meredith is telling me this. I'm like, how did you answer that? And, and, and Meredith said, and the lady turned around. And Meredith said, well, well, honey, God has made mankind in his image to reflect his glory. And he is so glorious that one color would not suffice. And so God has made people. I know. Isn't that awesome? Who do you think writes my sermons? You know what I mean? So. <laughs> Uh, and, that, and, and so for our people to know that God's heart beats for, that God's glory is displayed in all the races. And when all of them come together in the, in the, in the body, it glorifies God. And then I think to, to teach them the gospel. We've been talking a lot about Ephesians chapter two, the dividing wall of hostility comes down, but back up where it says, remember that you were once alienated from God, that you were once not a people. And I think I want my children and my church to have this just instilled in them that I did not have privilege, that I was marginalized, that I was an outcast, and because of the blood of Christ, I've been brought near. And that, kind, that again, is what will cause us to go out. Amen. So. Amen. If the Lord tarries for the next 50 years, we want to invite you back to Memphis to be here April 3rd and 4th of 2068. <laughs> to remember the 100-year anniversary of Martin Luther King's life and his legacy. And my hope is that the conversation we just had will transform the trajectory of where the church is going in the future so that 50 years from now, we can see the Lord making a difference in our community and in our churches. And will you join me in thanking our panel for their insights tonight? Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit us online at erlc.com or subscribe through iTunes or Google Play.